everyone, before we dive into the episode, I just want to give you a quick reminder that supporters of the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon get access to patron-exclusive Q&A episodes and mini-episodes. For instance, we're going to record an episode on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I think is going to be an interesting, cathartic episode. So if you'd like to hear the episode and other exclusive content, head to our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. And now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Michael, and this is Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Inglorious Bastards, and I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, writer Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Writer Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And editor Alex Cayeros. Hi. So, Inglorious Bastards, we're going to talk about it, and we're probably going to have to talk about a lot of Tarantino, just because you can't mm-hmm. talk about one Tarantino without talking about all the Tarantinos. Um, <laughs> yep. The Tarantini. <laughs> the plural of. Yeah. But yeah. the Inglourious Bastards video was, was interesting because it's kind of yeah, the most like scientific video that I think mm-hmm. I've done. And, and looking at, I, I remember wanting to like, in my, my aspiration to create the grand unified theory of storytelling and screenwriting Uh i remember thinking like i need to understand emotion like i want to find a psychological paper that explains what is actually happening in our brains when we're experiencing emotion Mm -hmm. uh and there happened i happened to find this paper on tension and suspense that like plugged in really well to one of my favorite scenes which is you know the opening scene of inglorious bastards that's kind of why i got so excited about it and spent so much time on that video but the inglorious bastards is interesting because when i think about it it's i think about it in like snippets like mm. there are storylines of it that I'm like, oh, that's Inglorious Bastards. And then when I've sat down to watch it, I forget that there are right. these other subplots happening. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you guys have that experience also with this with this movie. Well, I mean, it's divided into chapters. So yeah. it does sort yeah. of have that like very intentional feeling of it has or, or movements, I guess you could say, in sort of like more musical or symphonic sort of way where it does feel like it moves through these very distinct phases and so I think that sort of feeling and and of course it has these amazing long set pieces too and I think that's what you're like sort of getting at and describing because like how you know the opening scene of this movie which you did your video about is one of the greatest things like and and Tarantino has said (laughs) it's his favorite thing that he's ever written right it's amazing Probably his best work. Like, like it's just so, so Well, I feel like at the end of this movie, when Brad pisses into the camera, this is my masterpiece. (laughs) Or I I think it's whatever he says. Yeah. I kind of agree. Like, I think Inglorious Bastards may be his masterpiece, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, And I I hate him for knowing that and for for saying it right before his name comes on screen. But I think it is true. I mean, he did spend 10 years on this movie, like just on the writing of this movie. And so there's that sense of, I mean, obviously everything he does, he does with like a high level of craft. But I I agree with you in the sense that like it has these very distinct movements and each one of them feels as carefully crafted as the next. And so when you're like sort of isolating one, it's pretty easy to do because it had, there are these larger sort of set pieces like the scene in the tavern is its own like you could do just a video, just a study on that. Yeah, just which- as well as you did on the opening scene you know 
I think the original, like, I think I was planning to do it on that scene, actually, yeah. because I think that that is also one of my favorite scenes. But there's so many more pieces that it was, it's more complicated and yeah. more difficult to illustrate the point with that one. Yeah, totally. It's so good, too. Yeah, yeah. I, feel, I feel like mathematically speaking, it's impossible not to remember certain parts of that movie more than others because some scenes are 20 minutes long and some scenes are two minutes long. So, of course, you're going to, you know, you, you've spent more of your life watching, <laughs> like, Landa, you know, and La Petite. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think for me watching the movie again, I watched it again last night um, for the first time in years, and it just reminded me of what a masterful cinematic experience it is. I mean, there's parts of it that I'd like more than others, and there's Tarantino things that bother me, but it's undeniable that there's just such a level of craft, as you said, Trisha, at work here. And it's it's just, I, I think it's a really remarkable movie that, I want to revisit more often because yeah. it, it it just on every level of acting, cinematography, um, set and mood. And mm -hmm. it just it's, works on so many levels. I just love it. Well, it's gorgeous. Like, it's really gorgeous. It, I forgot how well it was shot. Well, I mean, even just think about that opening sequence with it's autumn in this like rural French countryside, the, the trees are incredibly beautiful and crisp and everything. It's like the atmosphere is so well captured. The the landscape is so beautiful and yet he manages to imbue it with so much like menace. It's so good. And and throughout you see like the way the cinematography is, it's this is just like epic, you know, huge shots of really isolated people and like splotches of light and color. And it's just really, really pretty to look at and also horrifying. And so like having being able to hold those two things, I mean, it's just it's it, stunning. It has, a, it has a maturity to it, yes, I think, absolutely. that even films made afterwards don't have, in my opinion. Mm. You know, I think I feel like it's his most mature film in a lot of ways, which is maybe why it's my favorite of his. Yeah. Yeah, and well, and it's interesting because I feel like it's you know in in the works of Tarantino, if I'm not mistaken, it's kind of the first of his kind of like latter day. Well, yeah, the like looking at parallel universes mm -hmm. of like what if mm -hmm. stories, um, and it's just kind of interesting that yeah that, that there was a point where it seemed like suddenly he shifted and like that's the thing he's going to do now, um, but yeah, it's it's then interesting thinking back on his early films and how you know he has always had this kind of ability to create tension and put the audience like play with the form in ways that make you unsettled but like usually delivering in a really like cathartic interesting explosive way um that I, that i feel like came to such fruition for me also in this movie because i think it's it's used to serve uh, a narrative that i was really interested in and that is grand in scope but like it get you connect with all the characters you're, you know them all intimately in a really interesting way um so yeah that's i i agree i feel like this is definitely my favorite tarantino film for well, and, and by setting it when and where he sets it the stakes could not be higher yeah you know, right. that's it's just the tension is so incredible because it's the highest stake situations right. imaginable <laughs> You know, yep. if you have any historical knowledge of what was happening at that moment no exactly yeah I, I mean it brings up something that i wanted to get your guys thoughts on which is just what is the benefit slash value slash just how do you guys feel about the sort of 
fant- fantasy history kind of mm. sub 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 genre you know mm. just sort of being like what if we you know shot hitler in the face a whole lot because <laughs> <laughs> because it's like on one, on yeah, one I mean, hand yeah right on, on one hand uh it seems like a like a dumb idea but on the other hand it's like so cathartic and so like yeah. yeah why not why do you have to like stick to real history to to tell to make a, a silly movie i mean i say silly i feel yeah, like yeah. All, most tarantino movies are pretty silly even if they're not they, they ultimately yeah. end up being pretty silly and, yeah. And, yeah. All, and this movie was criticized for being silly mm. and for being like taking well actually this movie was like praised in sort of it's like cathartic silliness but then immediately after this he made Django Unchained yeah. people didn't like that <laughs> they thought that was too silly yeah yeah I, I, I'm on board with that but I, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. a whole other thing I want to talk about no, <laughs> but no, real, totally yeah. but I do want to get your guys thoughts on just the like the the idea of this sort of alternate history mm, revisionist history yeah, stuff revisionist history yeah I don't know Michael I mean I, I feel like that was my hesitation going into Inglorious Bastards like I remember seeing the trailer for it and kind of like rolling my eyes of like oh it's Tarantino the trailer is very like actions and guns and like murder and violence and blah 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 uh, also Nazis <laughs> right but I think that's kind of I think what I was impressed by with it is that I was kind of swept up in this like once upon a time like in World War II kind of a thing yeah um, that like it made me buy into a, a, an idea that I think I would kind of agree that is kind of goofy like mm. I think if someone just kind of said like what if the past didn't happen the way it did, but it happened this other way that I imagined? I feel like that's a hard sell. That's a thing I wouldn't be on board with. But I think for some reason, this movie, uh, I think, pulls it off in a way that I I think I've come to feel is the exception to the rule that pulling it off is is a tricky thing. Well, I think I think for me, I I can understand the aspect of the kind of cathartic revenge mm. for historical grievance like being expressed right. through a cinematic work I I, I, right. I like that idea there's something interesting about that on the other hand I'm not personally ever very satisfied with like revenge as a thing mm. um, especially yeah. when yeah. it's kind of done uncritically and kind of in this lewd like boyish like schoolyard way where you know even the trailers for this movie I was turned off by a bit because they do focus on Brad Pitt's speech, basically being right. like, "We're gonna scalp Kill all the Nazis, scalp the yeah. Nazis. I want a hundred Nazi scalps. I want like you know, it's it's all about basically. And I want my scalps. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the big like tagline moment. I'm like, okay, great. Um, but I I think with yeah all these kind of revenge fantasy alternate history movies, um, I don't understand exactly what he's saying or if he's saying anything when he kind of marinates in the like extreme like revenge violence and spelling out just how almost we're going to match the oppressor's evil with like as grotesque and evil and it's going to be fucking awesome you know (laughs) like like, 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 that's like the tarantino thing and i don't what is he like what is he doing with that does he actually just genuinely believe that does he think it would be freaking awesome if we could be nazis to the nazis like or is he trying to say something and he's trying to say something i don't get what he's saying i don't know i have a lot of thoughts the thing is truthfully i don't think tarantino thinks about it in those terms at all right like that's the whole thing i think (laughs) 
and, be, and I'm, I'm only basing that on things that he's actually said. Right. Which is like, people have asked him that exact question, basically. And he's been like, well, you're missing the point, which is that violence is, is entertaining. And you're like, oh, it, okay. Um, uh, like, I'm not joking. That's, look it up. Fascinating. Yep. Okay. Um, and so, like, I think those are incredibly useful questions to grapple with. I think we absolutely should grapple with them. I do think the specific circumstances of Inglorious Bastards and World War II and the Nazis, I mean, look, for basically as long as film has been around, we have had the Nazis as villains because we can, because there's something about the way that history has been written that enables us to cast the Nazis in this universally despicable role. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it's convenient. Right. It's Um, very convenient. It's incredibly convenient. And so like, it's funny, we've been working for six months on a Casablanca video. Um, (laughs) And but but like the, which eight hours a day every day, right? all day. Yeah. No, 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 it's gonna be amazing, <laughs> you guys. No, but the reason that it's it's given us so much trouble is that the specifics of Casablanca are so unique to the time period. They're so unique to the situation. It's like, well, you have this in, this incredibly compelling love triangle, but the reason it's so compelling is because it's specifically set during this time where it felt like good and evil were as black and white as they've ever been. And they've never been as black and white at that as any other point in history. And again, I wasn't there, but like that is how it is portrayed in cinema. And to right. take another any sort of other grayer stance on it is not acceptable. And again, not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying for Tarantino to pick something like this and like he is obsessed with revenge all the time. Obviously, We've yeah. seen it like throughout, but like something like Kill Bill, something like, I mean, basically literally all of his other movies, all of his movies, all have of his movies have yeah. revenge, but they're never as neat and clean as this. Right. In a lot of ways. And so this is a movie that we can sort of like get behind and laud where, shooting Hitler in the face a lot is like still kind of a thing where we're like, yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. 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 Yeah. Because, yeah. because for all the, for all the world war two movies, there are, they don't end like that. <laughs> right. Know? Exactly. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, I think you touch on exactly my feelings too, of like yeah. why I think this movie works is because the bad guys in it are universally the bad guys. Yeah. Like, if there are like there are few things that humanity as a whole can like agree on and like basically everybody can agree nazis not good one just hitler bad Bad. what hitler bad what the nazis did is the most unforgivable like un like imaginable thing right (laughs) so it's like and there's been lots of other cases of terrible things happening but like you were saying trisha in in cinema especially this is kind of the one we have that like is there's a shorthand nobody disagrees well maybe now they do but well and historically though there is something very specific again not to get too much into the weeds about history necessarily although we might as well under the circumstances but there is something about world war ii because it was sort of the first war where they brought in the cameras and they really, there was like film because film is such a young medium. This is really the first war that was captured on film. There's some footage of world war one. You know, we have photographs of like the civil war and stuff like that. But like when they discovered that the concentration camps existed, somebody was like, hold everything, bring the cameras in here. 
and let's really film this and let's really see what it looks like. And that, that was sort of the first instance of this happening. And, um, you know, to Germany's credit, there's a lot of remembrance culture in Germany where there's like a lot of all those, most of those concentration camps are left standing and fifth graders get bussed out to them and they go and see them. And so like, there is a very well-preserved legacy of this particular thing. And so that I think is part of what undergirds all movies that have Nazis as villains, you know, from like Indiana Jones and onward, but like, especially in glorious bastards where it's like, okay, we, we get it because we actually are young enough to remember. We as a society are young enough to remember, but also we've taken the care to remember. Right. Yeah. We've actually bothered to remember because there's a lot of atrocities that plenty of atrocities, not culturally widespread that we didn't get on film. Yeah. 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 He starts from there. And I think what is also great about Inglorious Bastards is that within the text of the film, we get to experience like specific like acts of like atrocity yeah. that we can like we see Hans Landa kill the people mm-hmm. under the film. Like that's In the, the opening that's scene. That's the opening scene. Like we already like dislike Nazis and now we have this very specific relationship to this character within this film. Um, and I feel like he does that really well with kind of all the characters where like each time you're jumping between a chapter, you know, oh, okay, cool. We're catching up with these people and this is what their mission is. And there's this, there, it, it's kind of this really fun, I feel like this is what you would want from any kind of film like this where there's these different chapters, but they all kind of come together in right. a really nice, mm-hmm. satisfying way. Well, right. I, I, I realized that upon watching it last night, how much it all comes together mm-hmm. because some of the other movies movies don't come together in that same satisfying way. Right. You have these chapters and they kind of just have their own thing and they kind of just end or languish. But this movie feels tight in a way that other Tarantino movies don't for me. And it's tight while still doing all the Tarantino things we want, which is these long extended sequences that aren't afraid to stretch the tension out for, you know, 17 pages but it still feels like a movie movie. You know, you get that really satisfying conclusion. Well, I will say that like the one thing, one thing that bugs me about, so I'll call it say like latter day Tarantino, which is like Kill Bill and, and later is I think Kill Bill's the, the biggest, I know a lot of people love Kill Bill, so I apologize, but like, I think it's, it's the biggest uh, perpetrator of this, which is just like, it is eight, different kinds of movies all at the same time mm. uh trisha used a word to describe hot fuzz as tone confused mm. and i feel like that's something where it's like kill bill you're like oh yeah like there there's like blood spurting out of people and it's hilarious but like also like she was raped a lot and like, <laughs> and, like, it's, like it's so like yeah. what is happening and i feel like uh and i think django unchained is a really good example of that it's like why is there like hip-hop music suddenly like at the very end like if you're going to do that throughout your movie cool but like why don't wait till the last like 20 minutes to do it um, and I feel like he does a lot of that. And Inglorious Bastards definitely has a lot of that. You have like the Hugo Stiglitz montage where it's like now there's like rock music playing and Sam Jackson's narrating. It's like, wait a minute. This is the movie that had the Hans Landa scene a second ago. <laughs> um, so it, it's and it bugs me because I saw this movie before it actually came out a screening with Eli Roth at USC, which was interesting. Oh, wow. We were all um, shocked that you did that, Brian. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um which was funny, Eli Ross, someone was like, so was Harvey Keitel playing like the wolf? And he's like, what, like a time traveling version of the wolf from Fault Fiction? He's like, no, he's like, Sam Jackson also wasn't narrating as yep. Jules Winsby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. Um, Which, although, like, universe. yeah, I was going to say Tarantino has been very clear to like, he's building a universe. Right, That's right. true. Right. And is happening very consciously 
all the characters have like the last names of like, uh-huh. characters that come later in right. time and oh, it's tiring <laughs> but uh but yeah so i think i think something the first time i saw uh inglorious bastards i was like oh, like i love all the things he does really well and then he gets so goofy sometimes and that is what's weird about the the last act of the movie is like now he's taking these like very different tones and putting them all into one movie theater together and i think for that he does it pretty well we've talked about this with like the avengers movies too where it's like you have to take these very different feeling movies and now put them in one movie together um so i will say that like for as much as that element of latter-day tarantino bothers me i feel like inglorious bastards is one of his best in terms of keeping it fairly balanced even if he does kind of do some stuff where i'm like you know you zoomed into the bombs on their legs with like the peephole thing from cartoons and like, <laughs> you told me who's who's in in, a, in like a two plus hour movie you like point at people and like put text on screen which he also does once upon a time in hollywood i'm like is that the best is that the most efficient way as a screenwriter to like give the audience information be like i'll just put text on the screen that says what's going on I'm like okay yeah those like circles in the later part of the movie uh-huh. where it's like here's goring you're yeah. like okay yeah <laughs> here's an arrow pointing at him Thank right you. it's that thing where it's like i just come to expect it from yeah. him yeah. so uh-huh. it's like almost weird if, if that didn't happen it, it in some ways inglorious bastards is remarkable for how restrained it is for how, for how much of the movie. Sure, because that's totally part of why I like it so much is that there's stretches of it where I kind of forget I'm watching a Tarantino movie. It just feels like a great classic movie. Right. Yeah, the goofiness is kept to a minimum, and um, I feel like the range is established early on. Like I feel like as soon as you meet the bastards, it's sort of like, mm. oh, okay, this is like the goofy part. Like this is where that kind of thing is going to happen. Mm, yeah. And I feel like that's also consequently why those were my least favorite chapters but i think then it it sets the expectation that like this is within the reach of this movie it can go these places and and i think it kind of worked to be you know introducing this idea of a parallel history like having those moments of levity kind of for me anyway kind of let me ease into the world and like you know we can have these serious like very powerful imagery happening that's changing the course of history but like it's okay to laugh also because brad pitt is terrible at speaking like an <laughs> italian person or yeah that, that is yeah. that is a great scene yeah, yeah. your so, uh, like yeah. i love i love brad pitt's like comedic performances it's really like, good. like, it's like so good. another tarantino movie true romance yeah uh, you know yes, he just yes, plays yes. like the like super stoner in that and burn, burn out to reading so yeah, yeah exactly yeah when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We've all seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we will not spoil it in in this episode. Uh, we will spoil it in later. our mini episode, which we're going to record also. Yeah, which we're itching to talk about. We are very much. As I was watching it, I was having the thought that I have in every Tarantino thought, which is, or in, in every Tarantino, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, in every I, Tarantino thought <laughs> is another thought. <laughs> the inception of thoughts. <laughs> the thought I have in every Tarantino screening that is, you know, if Tarantino's name was not on this film mm. and if the actors were not A-list actors that are uh, like assigning it credibility, right. would we respond at all the same way to these movies? I love that as a question. Yeah. What do you guys think? <laughs> yeah. 
I think the um the Melanie Laurent storyline in this movie, the Shoshana storyline, I would respond to. You know, that storyline has me from the from the get go. I one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is when she breaks character in the in the restaurant scene at, yeah. after he yes, leaves. Yes, yes, yeah, just like so good, so good. Um, I so I I feel like there are pieces of this movie that would meet that requirement for me, and then I do think when it's all depending on you being super excited for Brad Pitt giving a badass speech and Eli Roth, you know, coming out with this bat and like the awesome music while he beats somebody to death. Like, I don't know if I would respond to that if it wasn't Brad Pitt and Eli Roth kind of with right, each right. other. And right. I don't know. I mean, yeah. that, that's an interesting, I, I want to come back to this, the, this thought in a second, but you talk about tension in the video. And I think the biggest thing about tension is you have to pay off your tension, you know, and like mm. the Hans Landa thing pays it off. The, tavern scene you could argue that like for how quick the like action is at the end that like it's it almost it's like eh, it could be more but i feel like the donnie donowitz scene is a perfect example of like yeah. the tension doesn't pay off it's like oh here he comes here he comes he comes out. he's like ah, he knocks it out of the park and it's like oh it's just like a whiny guy <laughs> like and i think that's part of the point but like but yeah it's just sort of like we build we're building up this like really cool tension and then like no we're back into like car- cartoony tarantino mode if that makes sense um but anyway you were saying I think for me, it comes back to character. Like, you know, regardless of whether or not Tarantino created this character, if the character itself textually is well constructed, then I think we're still going to be invested. And I think that what that is exactly what works with the Melanie Laurent storyline. All we need to do is see her running out of there, covered in her family's blood, like, running for her life and we're with her forever at that point and so like everything she does is like just weighted by that scene and so you know her whole storyline is going to be compelling from that point on and that and that itself is what like undergirds that scene with tension where you were talking about where she like breaks at the end where you can see that it's like literally all she can do to hold it together that entire time as she's like sitting across from the person who killed her family and trying to just get yeah. through this strudel. But like- <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think uh, wait for the cream. I think what's so compelling about her, Ugh. all of her scenes is that, yeah, she's living in yes. Nazi occupied Paris right. and, and she's all of her scenes. She's interacting with Germans and yeah. with Nazi and, yeah. and just her character is so well constructed and yes. how she decides to present herself and yeah yeah right. her her storyline is so heartbreaking when you've already seen the movie you know because i'm just like don't give him the time of day but also like like for, forget about even you know what your real identity is like it's just you can't say no to these guys right, you, you know and it's like it's like it's it just makes me so uncomfortable and then knowing that she like eventually kind of gives him the time of day and then eventually then kind of maybe feels a little sorry for him and then like that and i'm just like Oh, it's so hard to watch. Well, but in earlier drafts of the script, she was a much more like active rebel. Uh-huh. Um, and so she was like conducting like sniper operations and doing like other things and like more actively resisting the Germans during her, her stay in Paris. And I, I think it was quite late in the screenwriting process that they were like, that's not realistic. Like she right. would lie as low as possible. Right. She would try to stay out of it as much as possible. And then to have her dragged in in the way that she's mm-hmm. dragged in, because you really get that sense of like, she doesn't, she's not actually out for revenge. 
right? She's not. She's, she's, she's an opportunity she to end the war. You know, right. that's why her story is compelling to me. Yeah. She, exactly. Her, her whole character isn't this one-dimensional no. revenge machine. Right. Yes. You know, she, she's actually a character <laughs> that makes <laughs> she, sense in the world. That, like, yes. I empathize with. Where I'm like, Very that's much. what I would be. Like, I wish I would be as good at doing what you're doing as right. you are. And she's so smart. And she's like, yeah. we're going to... We're gonna make this work. We're gonna make. We're gonna figure, figure out how to make this work, and we're gonna end right. the war. Right. And yeah. But she's very much thrust into that position. It isn't one she goes seeking out, right? Which I think right. is really important for her character in order to be like realistic in any way. And I think also helps earn the kind of parallel revisionist aspect of it. Yeah. Like, because we're so invested in her, it's like I'm okay going along with like, okay, cool. She gets to find a way to end the war. Like emotionally yeah. that's that is what i and, want and right yeah her moment. revenge is the revenge that is cathartic for me you know watching the, her you know films performance on the screen mm-hmm. and burning up in flames like that's a tarantino revenge fantasy image i can get behind mm-hmm. and then i'm less engaged when you've got the inglorious bastards guys just machine gunning people right. or running for the exits like that's less awesome to me than you know the Shoshana character laughing as the theater goes up in flames. Listen, if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, <laughs> stick around. Yeah, <laughs> there's some obvious parallels there's so here. So many thoughts coming. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Um, but Michael, go ahead. I, I was actually just reminded when you were saying Trisha about the multiple drafts of the story. This is a tangent story, but randomly, I in a previous life shooting interviews with sound designers, I shot an interview with the sound designer that Tarantino works with a lot. And kind of between, you know, takes and rolling and stuff, he was saying that he once was on a private plane with Tarantino flying from somewhere to somewhere else. Sure. And it was a long flight. And he said Tarantino just started telling him the story of Inglorious Bastards. And it took the entire like multiple, multiple hour flight to finish it. But that it was like in in his mind, he has like eight, 12 hours worth of movie (gasps) of Inglorious Bastards. And he told him all of it and so to when it came time to make the movie he somehow had to like you know bring it down to just these like couple hours of of Mm. thing uh but there's just something that's interesting and and has always stuck with me is like tarantino of course is someone that has 12 hours worth of movie of what these other characters are doing at any given time and blah 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 i feel like you can you can kind of feel that you know in his movies of course yeah because they his characters are so well drawn most of the time and and they come into these little short films with so much life behind them that mm-hmm. he must have thought of their other adventures and where they come from. I mean, think about La Petite in the first yeah. you know, yeah. few yeah. few moments of this. Also that actor. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. But sorry, continue. Yeah, the, the casting, the casting in this one yeah. was yeah. freaking great. Uh, Trish has it written Denis, down. Denis Mon- I'm going to say it wrong because he's very French. Uh, Denis Menochet. I'm going to go with that. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, he's amazing. His, his he, like you were talking about with with um, Shoshana's uh, breaking character kind of thing. Like when when he finally says, you know, you're housing him in the states, aren't you? Like oh like God. the way he responds, the way he yes. says yes twice in a row is just like so heartbreaking. Because because he's a great actor, obviously, but most of the time he's playing it very stale faced. So it's right. like when he finally knows that it's up, like just the everything underneath just going, you know. Michael, maybe you can like talk us through. A little bit of the video in case people haven't watched it recently um but just like the kinds of tension that are undergirding that scene all right that's three undergirds you're off the podcast for this. okay 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 <laughs> fine fine uh the kind of ten- simmering simmering beneath <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, well, so luckily I rewatched the video so I can kind of remember what I talked about in it. Great. But I think, yeah, there's just, there's so much. It's it's like hard to know where to start. But I think the moment I kind of always go to now, I feel like I've developed kind of this like magnet sense to midpoints. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the midpoint of that scene is where you reveal that the family's under the floorboard yeah. and that recontextualizes everything. And I remember being in the theater when that happened and just like you could feel the audience like react and tense up in that right. way. And I feel like kind of like I talked about in the video, that's kind of where it moves from tension to suspense uh, mm. in this paper that I was referencing. Tension is where there's stability and then it's moved to you're moved to a state of lack of stability. And that's what happens in the beginning where we see the farmer and they're on the, they're on the farm, they're having the normal day and then Nazis show up and that destabilizes things really quickly. And then suspense is a more specific, you're dreading a specific outcome. Mm. And so at that midpoint when that shift happens, Suddenly, we're moved from tension to suspense, and it kind of rejuvenizes the scene because now, you know, it's making us at the same time reconsider everything that's come before because now, you know, we know he was lying and we understand the stakes a lot more. Uh, and we now, like, know the terrible potential outcome. And I feel like, as I say in the video, knowing that we're watching a Tarantino film just amplifies yeah, that right. so much more. It's yeah. probably going to go south. Right. right. Yeah. Like, it's going to go bad. It, it reminds me, uh, you know, you talk about in the video, Hitchcock's bomb under the table. You mm-hmm. know, have a conversation yeah. and then have that same conversation, but show the audience a bomb under the table and it changes everything, which literally happens yeah. in, in the theater uh, scene. And forgive me, I think I may have talked about this on the podcast before, so forgive me if I have, but the mid-season finale of the last season of Breaking Bad uh, or the end of the fifth season, depending on how you qualify things. We have not talked about this in the podcast. So okay. Go ahead, Bri. Uh, it's it's a scene. I won't spoil anything about Breaking Bad uh, other than you're going to know something's coming because it was like there's not there's a year before episode. It's like the family's out in the deck having dinner or having right. lunch. And it's everything's like a very really calm happy. pool party. Right. Yeah. And I feel like in the same way you say because you know you're watching a Tarantino movie. For me, it was the bomb under the table was literally just knowing that there were five minutes left in right? uh, in right. this season or half season, however you qualify it. And and that was it was so stressful for me to watch this totally <laughs> normal, nice thing going. There's no way it ends. Like this. Right. Yeah. I feel like that's yeah the, the like the meta awareness that comes right. when you know too much about story of like everyone's really happy right now. Like, there's no conflict. There's right. too much smiling. I'm worried. Something terrible is about to happen. It's the Indiana yeah. Jones rule. Every time he smiles, you're like, nah. yeah. <laughs> Well, and I feel like we have gotten into this in private conversations before, and then our No Country for Old Men podcast, which is like, I love I love that podcast. That was the first one we ever recorded, and uh, you can listen to it if you become a patron, but like, it, our sound went wrong, so like, our sound is not good on that podcast. But but we talk a lot about the Coen brothers and, and sort of their similarities with Tarantino, which is just that if you have any sort of like filmic knowledge, you're coming into this from a different place than like a lay person who doesn't. And so that's exactly what you guys are talking about, which is like, I watch Tarantino movies and Coen Brothers movies basically through my fingers or just like sort of really tensed up. I mean, I was sitting in the theater on Friday night watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I like had my hood over my head. So it was very cold in my theater also, but (laughs) I was like had my hood over my head and I was like sitting as close as I could, like crunched in my chair, just like ready to cover my eyes at any moment and partially largely because I was like, I'm in a Tarantino movie. And so like, I don't trust anything that's happening. And, and Tarantino 
as a filmmaker, has been clear that that's something he has tried very consciously to cultivate. Like, anything can happen in his movies. That's something he has wanted to, in like, freak his audiences out about, basically. Which, the ironic part of it, maybe I won't. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> well, uh, and in a Tarantino movie, too, when the thing happens... You might see somebody's head get crushed, or you know, like it might right. be like or way on, worse. Like hateful yeah. eight has a lot of like, yeah. okay, he just showed me that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I was, and I was just thinking this was a conversation, but I wasn't because I'm in a Tarantino movie, so I was always aware someone's head could get crushed. It's such an interesting aspect of like filmmaking that is like so relevant to such a few number of filmmakers. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, it is interesting because that is such a part of it, and kind of even just about the coen brothers as you were talking like i feel like watching no country for old old men there was suspense because i feel like anything can happen like right. i feel like anything's on the table but i don't know where it's gonna go right. where i feel like with the tarantino thing i feel like as soon as there's dread i know where it's going to go and it's like a different kind of he's gonna mm-hmm. flavor of tension like yeah. somebody's head is gonna be crushed on camera right. for sure it's just like whose head and when <laughs> I will say one of the most upsetting scenes because it was hard to predict what actually happened. One of the most upsetting scenes in Glorious Bastards is the one where Londa chokes out right. Bridget von Hammerschmack with his own hands because you know she's totally screwed going into that entire scene. Right. Like cuz we know he's found the shoe, we know that he knows it's her. And so like but just what he's what exactly he's going to do is super unpredictable because we've never seen him in this situation before. He's go ahead. No, no, no. I I that like I know what's happening now. Like I rewatched it recently and I was like, I know that he's about to jump out of his chair. Yeah. His entire countenance changes, which Christoph Waltz is just like, we should talk about it for a Ridiculous. minute. But yeah. yeah, I mean unden- undeniable. Especially for someone who's been so calm and collected yes. the entire time. That's and yes. if you look at the next scene. He basically lets the plan happen anyway, which means so he, he just, just wanted to kill her. her. <laughs> he just wanted to. He was like, you know what? I'd really like to do right now. It's so crazy. The yeah. way that he just jumps out of his chair yeah. and latches onto her and just kills her right there. That's one of the ones where like the tavern scene at a certain point, you're just like, OK, everyone's getting shot, which is what right. happens. Right. Like, so everyone gets shot. Which but- is sex. I like Michael Fassbender. And that's so. I- He's so good. He's so charming. Well, old boy. <laughs> He's so British. This is how we go out. I hope you don't mind if we speak the kings. I love it. it reminds me of like T.E. Lawrence or like um, uh, if you guys have seen Dr. Strangelove. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. C- Colonel, Colonel Mandrake, you know, one of Peter Sellers' many performances in that movie. I love Michael Fassbender's performance in yeah. this. Like it's so layered because he did grow up in Germany. So like he is affecting a bad German accent. So like his I, German I accent is actually perfect. But he, like, is making it worse somehow in that scene, which probably only German people appreciate, right? So, um, and, like, that scene where the the other officer calls out, like, I know you're from Hamburg. I know you're from Frankfurt. Like, that's true. That's where those actors are from because that's the the German they're speaking. That's one thing so. I really appreciate about, about this movie, too, is that, the you know, it's yeah. he- heavily subtitled. And the peop- all the characters speak the language they would be speaking in that moment. And when even when in the opening sequence when they speak, switch to english it's for a reason yeah he doesn't want the people hiding under the floorboards to understand what they're saying right yeah so there's never a switch to english just for like our sake as the audience not wanting to read subtitles it's it's subtitled when it needs to be subtitled and it's it's in all the languages that are appropriate for those characters in that moment yeah i think they were saying it's like 
only 30% of this movie's in English. Yeah, like, I, I love it. I love it. I think that's a really interesting point that, yeah, it, I hadn't thought about it until, yeah, you were talking about that, Trisha. Like, language is such an important part of this movie. And I feel like it almost, again, lends kind of an authenticity to the revisionist aspect of it because it, right. it, yeah. it feels so much more real and authentic than any world war ii movie i've ever seen because there are <laughs> right. long like entire scenes that are like subtitled there's not german speaking with you know english with german accents you right. know in the nazi headquarters right or oh my gosh there's so many like weird like uh troy where <laughs> <laughs> Every but very every, historically accurate. Every character, but but like make it like um uh Last Temptation of Christ. All of the Romans are British British actors, and all of the uh Israelites. I guess I don't know what like the right term is uh, are American actors, and it's like okay, like you made a choice. Uh, Troy. Every single character in the movie is from two different cities, and every actor speaks with their own Scottish or Irish or whatever. And then Brad Pitt speaks with like some invented dialect that I don't know. Yeah, uh, his voice uh, is pretty weird in that movie. Right, Tom Cruise and Valkyrie because it's like another movie oh, where you yeah. just have like <laughs> all I mean, these British actors. Crimson like, Tide, which is a submarine movie that I love, is like Sean Connery and like Hunt for October. Hunt, oh yeah, yeah. okay. But so I was gonna October, say that's a good example because it does the really I, I interesting. Like it. Right, it's yeah. like it's like we're going to tell you, we're going to tell the audience we're changing gears here right. and like, like dollies and zooms in on their mouth and it right. switches from yeah, yeah. russian to english right. which yeah. confused me as a child <laughs> to no end because i did not understand what was happening you took it very literally yeah i was like, like wait <laughs> what <laughs> no i just i really appreciate this movie for that exact reason which is yeah. just like the, the moment where diane kruger bridget van hammerschmark goes like you americans i suppose none of you speak any languages other than right. english and they're like <laughs> right. no, we definitely don't like it's it, you know and and you really cast went to the trouble to cast people like Fassbender right. and cast people like Christoph Waltz who have incredible command of the language Christoph Waltz speaks four languages very mm. easily and they it's so it's so insane because that part is so realistic and so like well uh, I was going to say well observed but it's more than that it's like it's historically accurate and then you have also just like total insanity where you know you have alternate universe goofiness. like all this yeah right. goofiness. yeah, yeah but, the, exactly. but then it also like you cast brad pitt as the guy who can't do that sure, right? sure, you know? sure. so then it like but you make, brad pitt you actually speaks it. german okay sure like, but 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 <laughs> yes, point is he like does. <laughs> he speaks german very well oh, that's funny like they probably with an this... american accent yeah, but not like that, like thick Tennessee, like oh, mountain right, yeah. man accent they gave him in this movie. Obviously not. But it's just so funny. No, I agree. Like, <laughs> Which I feel like is also like literally the reason they like went with it. Right. Wasn't it that like they were at a table read and then Brad Pitt just like whipped it out and everyone cracked up and Tarantino was like, that's there your you accent go. for this. Yeah. Movie. I've heard that legend, too, but also Tarantino's from Knoxville. So you have to assume there's some like. Because eventually, you or maybe know, maybe Brad Pitt knew that, and like maybe, yeah. yeah. That that's something I, I think about also when watching this movie is directing a scene with people speaking a language that you don't speak. Right. right. Like what? Which he didn't bother to learn. Like Tarantino did not bother to learn his lines and the way they sounded in German or the way they sounded in French or whatever. He just kind of trusted that the actors were doing it. Right, which I think is cool, which I think is is maybe like the right way. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, like it, it just 
it's interesting thinking of directing a scene where you don't necessarily like you know what they're saying but you can't understand what they're saying but in some ways maybe you're even more focused on the emotion and the minutiae and you're not you know encumbered by like are they saying these words right or hitting all the language exactly right like well i think part of what's such a pleasure for me watching this film is you know yes i'm reading the subtitles but i'm also just watching their faces and listening to the tone of their voice and just even the rhythm of the words that are not in english and it's really pleasurable like it's it's the performances and the way the words are spoken is just inherently like nice on my ears and my eyes and i i think it it I think you could argue that, yeah, he maybe just focused on everything else but the meaning of the words, and it comes through on screen as far as... He's also, he's yeah. also he'll have conversations with the actors about what, how to say certain things and that kind of thing, you know? Mm. I mean, something that bugs me to no end when I watch foreign actors whose characters are foreign and English is not their first language speaking perfect English. Mm. And it really bugs me. And I think, like... Tarantino actually handles it pretty well, but I think like watching The West Wing, for instance, it's like there'll be Ian McShane is playing a Russian guy who's like just here for a bit and can speak every word of Sorkin dialogue. And it's like, ah, that doesn't feel real. It feels like somebody speaking dialogue written by an American. And I think it's more compelling to me when they're like, I don't know what this word is exactly, but you know, and it's something that feels like when you do talk to somebody who, and again, like if you're talking about Londa, like Londa has like a really strong command of these languages. Fine. You can have him say anything you want, but that's not how all characters right. work, you know? Well, it's funny because my friend who I introduced the before trilogy to recently, he's a foreign language speaker. He, he was born in Iran. And so he, English is a second language for him. And he sometimes didn't believe the kind of sentence structures that uh, Julie Delpy mm -hmm. would get into, you know, these very like almost like advanced, like poetic English language sentences. He said did not strike him as like, this is your second language. They seem like she was saying a sentence written for her. Right. By, like, by a native English speaker. Like in the, in the car yeah. scene before sunset, she says uh, it stirred shit up. And it's just like, it's one of those idioms that's like so specific, you know, it's not to say that like a foreign person couldn't know that idiom, but I feel like that's when it stands out to me the much when someone is, or stands the much? out to the much, that's when it, that's when it much Are you stands a, out. English second language? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it stands out to me most is when, is when a character says something that feels like it's, you only say that because you've heard your friends say it growing up in America for 20 years and not, you know, but again, it's like, you can't argue that any given character couldn't have heard that phrase yeah, maybe her character does know all these idioms sure because yeah. it's weird because i feel like that that's one of the things i liked about before sunset is i feel like she was saying things in a weird like i, I feel like there were also moments where yeah. she says things in a weird it's true structure mm -hmm. a lot like, of times she a weird does way to a lot of times she does and i i've never had that thought about it before i just thought it was interesting hearing from yeah them. well that plugs in yeah you know yeah. the thing is most of the people in the world speak english as their second language and so right like it's funny. Sorry, I watch most of the world. Sorry, most of the world. <laughs> That's our fault. Uh, but like, you know, it's really interesting. I watched a, a fascinating movie recently that was made last year that's set in, um, it's a movie called Transit and I really recommend it. Uh, and it, it's set in like, let's pretend that Nazi occupied Germany continued until now. Right. Essentially. So it's set in 2018, 2019, time but it's like the germans are just now taking control of paris or whatever and so like it it's a really interesting sort of 
you know, uh, dystopian idea of a movie. Um, but you have people from all over the world that are there in this, like in Paris, in this fictional Paris of 2019 or whatever. And you have people from Eastern European countries and people from like the Middle East and everything. And they're like, oh, do you speak German? No, I don't. Do you speak French? No. Do you speak Japanese? Nope. Do we all speak English? Yep. And they would just like talk to each other in English. It's not any of their native languages. And like, yet that is the reality the world over, truthfully. Like English is being spoken in all kinds of places where native English speakers aren't present. And so that, like, we don't sort of see this as much in Inglorious Bastards, but to some extent where like Londa is not a native English speaker and neither is La Petite, but like here they are. It's a language they can speak in common because La Petite doesn't speak German, you know? So I feel like there's, there is a certain verisimilitude there um, that functions well, you know, and again, like, regardless of what I think about English, I also think it's really valuable to have movies. We should read more movies, America. Like, <laughs> like I love subtitles. I love yeah. subtitles. I love we not should... missing things. I love yes. like getting every ounce of information I'm supposed to get, you know? It's, and it's and also the, the original actor's performance. I don't yes. want to hear some overdubbed. Oh, no, I can't no. do dubbing. Yeah. Yeah, we should be, we are so like spoiled where basically because a lot of our entertainment is manufactured here and it's American filmmakers and whatever that we get to listen to people speaking our native language all the time. And we're just so, and we can travel most places and they'll have to speak our language and we don't speak theirs. Exactly. Like (laughs) it's so funny. I was in, thanks Europe. I was in Mexico last year and I went to the movies on like a Wednesday evening and I was there to watch an American movie and they didn't dub it. So it was like the actors performing in English and there were subtitles in Spanish so that this Mexican audience could enjoy it. And so I was like listening to it and everyone around me was reading it. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it was a Wednesday night. The theater was packed out and everybody was vocally responding to this movie. And I was like, we should be better at this. And I love that Glorious Bastards challenges us in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I I think that really, I remember again, being in the theater and I feel like there, there was this kind of, intense focus in the audience mm. i think enhanced by the fact that you have to pay attention like you yes. have to read yes or else you're going to miss what's happening and no one wants to miss what's happening right, right. Yeah. can i throw in a weird little snide side note absolutely uh i saw is it a snide a, sn- side note? a snide note yeah i'm speaking uh <laughs> in english um i saw the two towers for i think the second time but my mom's first time in mexico with my mom who is a native spanish speaker from uruguay and Treebeard shows up and he starts talking and my mom laughs and i asked her later so what were you laughing at and she said so tree in spanish is arbol and uh, beard is barbara so Treebeard's name in the subtitles was barbol <laughs> And I was like, how cool that my mom was there to like pick up on that little like portmanteau of words that they put together. That. Yeah. I yeah. love it so much. Yeah. The, the whole like dubbing subtitle thing is really interesting. And Alex and I worked on a movie at one point that was all about dubbing and dubbing around the world. Mm. And it was uh, stressful <laughs> because editing a documentary is hard. But 
it was really interesting learning about how all the different cultures, how they have different approaches to subtitles and mm. dubbing. And in some places like Italy, dubbing is like the thing. It's like a very deep cultural history for them. Yeah. Like, yeah. Dubbers are like stars there. Like, right. the, like the voices oh, of, of George Clooney or big actors are right? known. Yeah. 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 It's called being George Clooney. Yeah, it's called being That's George Clooney. I've seen that oh, actually. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, we cool. edited it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> can I get your autograph? Please? It's on many airplanes, I've heard. Oh, okay. Or really cool. Can, can I get your autograph or have someone else say your name? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Good. Someone to dub lessons from the screenplay going forward. I do. Real quick, though, I do love watching The Simpsons dubbed in other languages because you have people trying to just like, ah, oh, Homer. <laughs> like someone trying to be Julie Kavner. Like. That's probably the most fun in the documentary is watching like Seinfeld be dubbed into like German and like yeah. all these other examples uh-huh. of yeah, like yeah. our comedy be- trying to be translated to other languages right. and like it's pretty weird, yeah. Well, it's interesting that in this movie, because it was distributed worldwide, that a lot of these actors were able to dub themselves. Oh, yeah. So like Christoph Waltz dubbed himself in like four languages. For That's, the international oh, distribution yeah. of this movie. Like slipping the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah there are Dan- examples of actors who like al- always do like their German or yeah. their whatever. Yeah, and Daniel Bruhl uh, is mm. a fluent Spanish speaker and he dubbed all of his Spanish like subtitles and things like that. So That's cool. it's really cool that like it wasn't, I mean, no one would accuse it for as long as we've been talking about it. No one would accuse it of being a gimmick anyway, but just that it was able to be so translatable although it is interesting they did run into a lot of problems in germany because nazi symbols and like nazi sort of uh iconography yeah all of that that is heavily restricted in how they can be like displayed in germany and so like even though the film itself was not edited to be distributed in germany the poster the marketing art, all of the marketing mm. had to be very heavily edited to like get all the swastikas out of it basically because I, you can't display those things interesting in yeah I mean, again I, remembrance culture well done Germany. yeah I, I had written a piece on glorious bastard several years ago and i just remember as i was taking screenshots i was like some of these are going to be a visible on social media some of them are just going to be visible in the article mm. so I, I actually even though nobody told me to i just became very careful about being like like the 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 header to the article was uh emmanuel Sh- shoshana like sitting in the window during the the david bowie uh montage oh, you know, so good. with like the nazi flag like in the background yeah. i was like that's such a beautiful shot but i don't want that to be like the facebook mm. you know banner yeah. or whatever yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird the context yeah i mean i, re- I remember being worried that the video was going to get flagged mm. in general youtube doesn't like it when you talk about nazis mm. and so i'm kind of surprised that it's been fine and it's the number five video on the channel That's, right thanks thanks youtube for that yeah i mean the context is pretty clear yeah <laughs> youtube about isn't always really good about context right, right. uh but you know i mean it's clearly educational though like in this is i feel like we haven't even done anywhere near justice of like really diving into why this movie is so educational and instructive mm. uh, from a screenwriting perspective which it definitely is um so uh, you tell us about that when you that talk can about be your lesson your, what yeah. you learned oh my lesson are we yeah. getting into those Should we do yeah. that? okay no, okay yeah. well, hold on hold on hold on we have we have two things i want to talk about. okay good, good, good. okay all, all, right. Right. all right quick first a quick one which is my least favorite shot in the movie and i just want to point this out all because right. i feel like it's like when writers and cinematographers like battle and i think in tarantino's case it's 
he's both um but not that he is the literal cinematographer i'm going to say the thing now um <laughs> it's it's the shot where uh the one of the daughters is putting up the laundry and puts the clothespin yes. on and then she hears the cars and instead of looking around the piece of laundry she takes the clothespin out and moves the thing because there's a camera behind her and it's going to be a really pretty shot and it's just one of those things where it's like oh, i just picture the cinematographer being like well if we did this it would look really cool and i'm thinking about it from like a character perspective like why would you ever if you needed to look I, somewhere not Brian, move your head i think i'm more on the dp side with this one i, I really, I really like that shot i it's like a- that shot and bry have you ever actually hung laundry on a clothesline yeah, I think so. I oh, when I was a kid. No. Yeah. No, because it's, it's <laughs> like the thing is, like it's it actually is so much easier because of the way that I looked at it again, like when I was watching it recently, and I was like, the way that it's laid out. If you keep it clipped there, you really would have to almost walk around the end of the pole, which is like she so could much. Grab more work. the clothes and just pull it. I'm gonna. Go, I'm gonna. You'd have to duck. I'm gonna side with Brian here on this one. I no, feel like no, no, that, no. that is it's not that I think. Stay it's tuned for bad. our extra mini episode where we argue about <laughs> just this one. It's the logic of clothespins. <laughs> I do feel like that's when it starts to be like, okay, and now I'm in a movie. Right. We're in constructed mode. Right. Which, but and, I'm, and I'm okay with that sometimes. If it's that pretty, I'm okay. I'm just saying. It's, Show me a pretty movie. And Tarantino, listen, Tarantino doesn't want you to forget that you're watching a movie. Well, that's the thing. That's for, right. But sure. I want me to forget that I'm watching a movie. That's why Tarantino and I are at odds sometimes. Okay. Oh, right. well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. So thing number two. Yeah, that was, that was the short so one. That was, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. No, just, uh, just, you know, we talked about Christoph Waltz's performance. And I just, I love, like, first of all, the bad guy who is, like, so, like, at any moment he might rip your, you know, face off or whatever. But also just, like... That that era, we, it was like the golden age of villains. Basically, you had mm. like, I mean, oh, wow. even yeah. even if you count like Anton Mer- Sugar, yeah, Anton Sugar, uh, uh, Javier Bardem, and No Country for Old Men, uh, Daniel Day Lewis, and There Will Be Blood, who's like a protagonist but still pretty villainous. Um, Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, even Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada. Like it was just like for like a three-year period that was just like the best performances and and honestly the best performances of the entire decade Agreed. were these villains uh and uh, and yeah i think that like christoph waltz was one of those ones where you're just like you know daniel day lewis or meryl street being great at what they do is not surprising but this guy you've never heard before just being like holy right. crap he was new is... to american audience that's what i mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But it's true. It was like one of those performances where it's like afterwards you're like, who was that? Right. Like, because he yeah. is a star now. I right. want to see him in everything. Yeah. That award season was my favorite where he was like tailoring all of his Oscar speeches to like be sort of subtly about the award he was receiving. So like when he won the Golden Globe, he was like in this uh, in this world, in this globe, in this, in this like <laughs> sphere, like, and then when he won the Oscar, he was like, uh, in this like galaxy, in this industry, in this like whatever. He just did like this. He's really... like, I'm just a small golden man. But... <laughs> <laughs> it was just like every single one of his speeches was so well written because he knew he was gonna win. I feel like so that was like... one of the seasons where it was like so obvious that it was just like right, he's but, going to win all the things. Right, but I love those seasons where like I know that someone like it was the same well, with Javier Bardem in No so Country much. for Old right. Men. Like yeah, right. it's it's a it is a landmark performance. We will, you know, be talking about this for years. And so like it's not hard to predict they're gonna win in like it when it is, it's so deserved and to see it graciously accepted and like obviously it 
Christoph Waltz was also like accepting in various languages, whatever he did. Right, his thing. of course. Yeah. Yeah. What a joy. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Well, why don't we go around, talk about the lessons that we're going to take from Inglorious Bastards. Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. One of the lessons I learned and have been learning and have been thinking about a lot lately in my own writing is just how to make things worse, you know, for the characters mm, always and yeah. make things basically impossible yes. and then make them even more impossible. And this, you know, most Tarantino movies are good at that, um, putting characters in pretty impossible situations and then usually ends badly or in a really insane way. And this movie is just a great example, you know, that underground cellar bar scene yes just the way he keeps like turning the screw and making it worse and creating obstacles and now the accent's wrong now he can tell this now he held up you know the wrong fingers for saying the number three like just it's there's he he came up with so many ways that this thing could go wrong and then like methodically let them all happen in the right order mm -hmm. that it's always intensifying like what deep shit they're in basically yeah, <laughs> yeah totally you talk, um, you talk about like stretching the rubber bands yeah you and know? but but i think one of the important things too is it's also the the intensification the escalation of the problem right like, yeah there's kind of like the smaller problems of like oh maybe he's from you know this weird mountain region that's, right. that's why it you know but then there's things that are less and less excusable and it just yeah. you know he just he manages to build like the step ladder to the climax that is just so well constructed and i think often you know in my own writing sometimes i go for like oh this is a really bad conflict and it's gonna be really hard for them and it's really intense but it's probably like actually like a three out of 10 as far as like right. how bad it could get. And it's actually kind of scary to think about how bad it could get because you don't right. know how to get them out of that situation. But I think Tarantino is a challenges us to think, no, no, how bad could it get? How could it be to the point where, you know, Brad Pitt doesn't know Italian at all, but uh, Londa does know Italian fluently. You yeah. know? Like, <laughs> like what is the worst thing that could happen? Let's actually do it yeah. and see how they get out of it. Right. And I feel like Tarantino, especially like his movies are a world in which sometimes they don't get out of it. Right. Yeah. So like yeah. he can really have that freedom where like they don't get out of the bar alive. Right. Like, it, right. right. It is an impossible situation ultimately. Right. Because yeah. it is still really compelling even when he like drops into English and like is like, I'm going to keep drinking this scotch and I'm going to speak English now. But and like we all know the score and we all know we're going to die here, but it's still really tense and compelling at that point. Um, yeah, but I, I feel like in addition to that, there's like these stair steps of like, we're going to make it worse. Then we're going to like level it off where it might be OK. Then we're going to make right, it worse. Right, then yeah. we're going to level it off. That's the then other kind of dynamic. It worse, it's, right? the, it's the ebb and flow yeah. of like, maybe we're going to make it. No, we're not. No, we're not. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like his scenes are long enough that you have to have exactly. those. Like right. you have to be taken on multiple ways. Because you become waves. numb if, it, if it's right. just, it's true. If it's just getting worse constantly, right. you just numb yourself because you're like, well, I'm preparing for the, you know, the inevitable end which goes back to that opening scene where there are moments where we think Wapatita is going to get out of it right mm -hmm. like he's so close he he's seems so, like he's yeah. so close, so close yeah. Yeah. Different so times but he probably he probably never was right and yeah. you realize at the end right, right. Yeah. totally yeah I also love in the in the tavern scene watching the actors give such nonchalant performances knowing that they're terrified <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so good yeah, yeah. so good 
Brian? It's something that I, you know, we talked about when, um, here, here I go mentioning Terry Gilliam again. Uh, we talked about from a style perspective, like there are certain people that I really like their work, like Terry Gilliam and David Lynch, but I constantly am going, but would this not have been better if you just did it more professionally and adult and sort of grown up where you have like a Fincher or a Nolan who like they're masters at making a really sharp, crisp movie, whereas other people sort of make whatever they want. And then you kind of have this back and forth of like, okay, you've got your quality moments that are like some of the best filmmaking I've ever seen. And then you have your moments that are so silly and goofy, it completely takes me out of it. And I feel like that's my struggle with Tarantino um, and like, a you know, Robert Rodriguez during that same time when they were both making kind of movies together almost. And it, it's like, I'm watching Inglorious Bastards and the next couple of Tarantino movies going, but can you just make a straight movie that doesn't have all your, all your you stuff in it? <laughs> and then I no. see, well, and then <laughs> fast forward to two days ago, three days ago, when I see Once Upon a Time in yes. Hollywood, which we'll talk about soon, but which doesn't have a lot of Tarantino-ness in it. And I just found really Hard boring. Hard disagree. Oh, okay. Well, we can talk about that in a second. But yeah. but I just felt like, oh, now I'm just bored. Like, and I, and I think that that's the, so. The interesting lesson. I don't know what it is, but it's like find the balance between what is you and what is sort of quote unquote correct or objectively. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. is a sort of like balance between how do you make what people will call sort of objectively a good film, but also. Th- inject enough of yourself into it that <laughs> plot twist everyone loves once upon a time in hollywood i know but uh but, not everyone <laughs> but eject enough of yourself yeah. into it that Subscribe it feels like right <laughs> that it feels like something that's uniquely you i'm done <laughs> i mean no I, I think that's a really interesting point and maybe at some point we can dive into it but that that's how i feel that's how i feel about uh wes anderson yeah and i feel like mm. i also wonder how much of it is like when you get on board the train like like i remember the darjeeling limited you mean <laughs> oh man oh i love it the grand budapest hotel i mm. feel like as, as you were talking that's what i was picturing where for me it was like like wes like just can you just make a like just make a movie like I not love everything the Grand and so everybody dumb. loves the Grand Budapest. It's because they think it's great, it's, Michael. I think it's probably his worst. But <gasps> but okay, hold on, was, hold on. I was pretty bored during. Let's it. let's before we <laughs> let's talk objectively for a second because yeah. I feel like if Royal Tenenbaums or Life Aquatic or something is Wes Anderson's uh, Inglorious Bastards, then I feel like something like Django or Grand Budapest is the doubling down. And I'm saying that yeah. from an objective perspective, not from a whether or not you like. I think that's a fair comparison. Okay, okay, yeah. But but it, I think with oh, any with so any talk about with any artist, there is that feeling of like, here's what people like about what I do. I'm just going to do a lot of that now, mm-hmm. right? And and okay, if that's not a fair comparison, it's not a fair comparison. But it, Grand Budapest Hotel for sure is Wes Anderson being like, what if I went full on Wes Anderson right now? Um, and I I think we can all at least agree on that. I, I don't I disagree, and like. I have very, very similar feelings about Tim Burton because I feel yeah. like basically Tim Burton has become a parody of himself Absolutely. and like he can only make the most Tim Burton-y movies possible now mm-hmm. um, and can't scale back anything. It, but I, I don't think that's true about Grand Budapest, but I think that's a very specific example. But that's not what this podcast is right now. Right. What did so, you learn, Trisha? <laughs> I learned a lot about characters having secrets. Ooh. Um, oh, yeah. Which is sort of a lesson we hear in in like 
film school, you know, like give your character a secret, whatever. In the same way that people are just like, give your character a problem. You're like, okay, great. Conflict, do a thing. The secrets in this movie are so, they are what create the tension. And the fact that we, the audience, are let in on the secret and the actors and the characters are put in the position of having to perform. And I think that this is something that is like sort of a thread that runs throughout Tarantino films, which is like someone has to perform a thing and we, the audience, are aware they are performing. And so we get invested in how well they are able to perform and needing their facade not to break. Because if it does the entire scene devolves into violence, right? It's, and that's particular to Tarantino movies. But like I was recently rewatching Reservoir Dogs and they were talking to um, Tim Roth's character where they're just like, you have to be Brando. You have to like perform this thing. And they they do the whole like monologue of like, you have to learn this monologue and you have to learn it so well that it is true, that you did live it, that you, it is this thing. And this movie really builds on that sort of idea of, characters being performers and the more the audiences realize that characters are performing again so like we don't necessarily understand when Michael Fassbender we as Americans when he holds up three fingers and we're like why suddenly now they realize he's not but we do realize some kind of fatal mistake has been made in the performance part and that goes down to the secret and so having these secrets that underlie the scene we don't know that going into the scene with Lapidita at the beginning, but we do know that midway through. We know the secret. And so the more that you can sort of create that, I feel like that is like sort of masterful suspense work that we see here. And so I have no idea exactly how I'm going to apply that to my own writing, <laughs> but I love it. Secrets it, are good. I secrets think. are good. Yeah. yeah. Secret secrets are fun. <laughs> is that the saying? Yeah. I think that ties in nicely to what I've decided is my lesson Great. in this moment, which is, yeah, that there is, I'm, I'm always fascinated watching movies um, kind of tracking the management of information. Mm. And I kind of talk about this in the Ex Machina video, but like, if you want to be hardcore objective scientist about it, like movies are just information being conveyed to an audience, like one frame at a time. And I feel like one of the things I I did kind of uh, enjoy about watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was I, I feel like Tarantino is really good at managing information. And that goes to what you were saying of like secrets, like what are the character secrets? When do we learn that they have secrets, et cetera? Like he's very, you know, it's almost like Fincher-esque. Like I feel like Fincher is very concerned with mm. information and like here's a close up of this thing and here's a close up of this thing. And this reaction shot means this. And Tarantino is not afraid to do that. Like so much I feel like of of watching Inglorious Bastards is the reaction shots and and watching people betray things or are monitoring, trying to, you know, is this, you know, we cut to this person and they're kind of keeping track for us of how well this other person's performance is going. And I think that's what I'm continually impressed by with this movie is that it's just there's so much information that you know 20 minute scenes worth of information but each moment is uh designed just right to give us exactly what we need to have the emotional reaction that we need at any given moment yes and to keep a a two hour plus movie feeling taut and like it's moving right Mm -hmm. which is also a side lesson about just discipline and i feel like discipline is important and if you get too big you might need people to 
discipline discipline you right yep. <laughs> um i'm talking about anyone specifically here okay what have we been watching this week really quick let's go around i'm gonna start because i have a thing yay yay i watched something i watched the really? thing i watched a lot of things but i'm gonna go with i finished uh broad city the tv show uh, and Broad City kind of crept up on me. Like, I remember, I think, Alex, you recommended it. Yeah, I mean, I was a huge fan early on with Broad City. And I watched it, and it, it fe- felt like a thing that was very much not my style of comedy, and, like, I don't know how I feel about this, but I kind of came to really love it and miss it when it was gone and welcome it with open arms when it returned. Uh, and so they just finished their final season a, m- a couple months ago. It ended up being a really interesting kind of portrait of millennial life and this kind of late 20s it's very new york but the way it's done i think is very universal some of the comedy is kind of distasteful they're just not my taste but i feel like it ultimately gets at really honest interesting um aspects of life that i feel like haven't i haven't seen reflected anywhere else and i think their voices abby jacobson and alana glazer that they i feel like they are voices that we need and i'm very happy to have had these past several years and and they wrapped it up in a really i thought really nice uh deft way so nice. Broad City. oh man i gotta finish it it's good okay nice yeah uh trisha yeah i am gonna say the real thing that i've been watching lately which is something i've actually watched before and is not new um but i have one of my best friends and i are watching re-watching for me the TV show Roswell, which was uh, a, I know. CW, it was a WB. It was a WB. It was a WB show, 1999 to 2002. It's on the WB. It's like sexy aliens, It is like sexy teenage aliens. It is a garbage show. (laughs) I love it. I have a good friend who has like the DVD I love it so much. Like, so I watched it when it was on and I obviously was a teenager at the time and recently I was like telling someone about it my one of my best friends Billy Don and I was like BD we have to watch this show you will love it it is trash it is the best trash <laughs> and so we started watching it again and honestly it is fascinating because it took place over a really sort of tumultuous time in history obviously right at the turn of the millennium and the show takes some really you know it was sort of like x-files influenced and it also buffy and like those kinds of things are baked into it um but they take some really big risks where like there was a point where we were watching last week you know it's it's a three season that show but it was like back when seasons were 24 episodes so it's like right right a lot it's like the oc yeah exactly which is just like thinking about it in like terms of being at a writer's room now i'm like God, that's so much. Oh, that's a lot of writing, actually, for just three seasons. Um, but they take some risks that I find off-putting, and of course, that's where Catherine Heigl came from. Oh, she really? came from that show. That. Colin Hanks also got his like big start on that show. Really? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. It's it's a weird, not great, pretty like adolescent, but just popcorn cotton candy watch it tap into your teenage self kind of a show it's on hulu so you can watch the whole thing on hulu so it's been really fun awesome alex this past week was outfest in los angeles which is like the lgbt film festival 
And I was like, I now live very close to where they were having the screenings at the Chinese theater. So I'm like, I'm just going to go and see some movies. So I went to a, a film like a week ago. And in Lion, I met the director of another film that was playing there cool. a week later, which is like a fun thing at film festivals. Uh, really nice guy. And he directed a movie called uh, To Me Monk, which Monk, I think it's like a French phrase. But he's Bolivian and he it takes place in New York, but he's he's a Bolivian filmmaker. And it was just a really interesting you know, I, like you were saying, Trisha, we need to see more foreign films we and do. more things in other languages. And yes. you know, the film it has some English in it, but it's mostly in Spanish. And it was just a really good reminder of, you know, we're such a bubble here in L.A. as far as like gay people are everywhere. We yeah. like own this town. It's like gay <laughs> is everything. But we're actually in West Hollywood yeah, right we're now. We're literally yeah, in my yeah. apartment in West Hollywood, yeah. which is like gay mecca in L.A. Yeah. But, you know, this was a extremely personal story by this Bolivian filmmaker and Bolivian culture is very conservative when it comes to LGBT rights and it's very uh, religious and um, and suicide is a huge problem wow, yeah. with with Bolivian like gay youth and so it was it was just a good reminder of like okay there are still like a lot of places and a lot of cultures that need these stories because it's still like dangerous to be gay and, absolutely and you know and suicide is such a huge problem yeah. in these communities because it seems like there's no other option um so it was a really very touching film obviously very personal to the director and it was really nice just to like yeah see a different kind of movie that wasn't you know of our coastal bubble you yeah. know do you know if it's thing. being distributed so where we can see it i don't know okay. um i mean i think it's in the festival circuit right now so it's mm -hmm. probably in that pre-distribution phase mm -hmm. but um i think it'll get distribution it was it was very well well shot very good acting can you say the title again uh, Tumi Monk, and it, there's an actress in it who has been in some Almodovar films. Mm. Um, I can't remember her name right now, but she might be a way to find. Is it, it on IMDb? Probably. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we should so go to IMDb. Go to Almodovar <laughs> films. Look at all the actresses. Find the actress. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's spelled T U, is one word. Great. M E is the next word, and then Monk is M A N Q U E. Oh. So and we'll French. put the title in the show notes also. Yeah. So you anyway. can does that mean I miss you? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Ah. Uh, there's also, real quick, um, a uh, documentary. I think you can watch it on YouTube that Stephen Fry put together called Out There. Uh, and I think it's about two hours long. And it's about uh, homosexuality across different countries and societies mm. and everything. And he actually travels there and he, he challenges some of like the leaders of, of different nations and stuff Whoa, and of course cool. Stephen Fry so his yeah. brain is going to like destroy theirs yeah. uh, and, I, and I love it so yeah if you, oh, if you want cool. something you can find right now go and watch out there on YouTube cool. nice awesome alright Brian take us um, on alright so I finally a movie that a friend had lent to me 20 years ago and I got around to watching the other day uh <laughs> charade with uh oh it's so good carrie grant and audrey Brian, Hepburn. Yeah. welcome yeah uh it was it was so much fun uh it, i love north by northwest and i feel like mm -hmm. of every movie i've seen it's most similar to north by northwest yeah. in that it's kind of a hybrid comedy and comedy thriller almost where it's like there's a lot of jokes and a lot of funny moments but also you're like oh but this is a real tense scene and it has a real plot to it um and so it's just a really fun entertaining movie but i think one thing that's really cool from a screenwriting perspective it's funny because we've been talking about exposition lately and there are scenes where it's just the exposition is two people sitting in a room talking and you're kind of like ah but also you're like oh this is 1960 but you know it's like that wasn't that was normal back then but the cool thing from a screenwriting perspective is every time you as the audience finds out gets new information 
Audrey Hepburn gets that information like within the next scene. And it's actually kind of nice because it takes away the frustration you get sometimes from a movie of like wishing that somebody knew yeah. something instead of being like, oh, why don't if only this person knew this, everything would be fixed. And, and that's a really easy way to to make films interesting. But I think what I like about this movie is that every time we find out something, she finds it out too, which forces the the, the film, the right. film forces the story to go, okay, now what's next? What's the next step in this, in this progression? The thing that's so unique about that movie is the number of switches. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like you get new information, you think you know the score, then Audrey Hepburn gets it. You're like, okay, we're all on the same page. But because she knows exactly what you're saying, she forces it into something else. Right. There's probably eight switches. At least, yeah. At least in that movie where you don't have any idea, where you get fed another story, she gets fed another story, and you're like, do I believe this? I don't know. I've had six switches so far. Why would I believe this one more than right. the next one? But it's all I have to go on. So I might as well. Yeah. And, and it, it forces the audience to also question everything. Yeah. Like, well, great. maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Awesome. Holds up. All right. Well, I uh, hope you've enjoyed this conversation about Inglorious Bastards and lots of other things. We could probably talk about the movie and Tarantino forever. And we will talk about more Tarantino soon. But yes, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to everyone that supports the podcast on Patreon. Uh, thank you to everyone that's tweeted at us and left comments on the YouTube channel. It's been really fun getting to engage with you guys. Yeah, please consider supporting the channel uh, on Patreon if you're enjoying it. And we will see you in the next episode. Au revoir, Michel. <laughs> Shoshana? <laughs> no, it's Michael. Oh, Michelle. Uh, okay. I went. I when I was in France, I made my parents call me Michelle. No, you didn't. No. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Oh. <laughs>